Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by investigative reporter Brian Chasnov, City Hall reporter Joshua Fector, business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson. We're recording this on the morning of June 7th, um, and we're going to be joined in the podcast today by uh, Kayla Harris from our Austin Bureau, who wrote a great piece last week about the uh, Democratic walkout that uh, broke quorum and uh, at least temporarily prevented the passage of uh, SB7, the the election law. And um, before we get to to that, we're going to talk about what happened uh, Saturday. We had five of the 10 city council districts uh, having runoffs. We uh, had two incumbents unseated, and we're going to have four new council members and all. And there's no one better to talk about it than uh, Josh Vector. Josh, um, when you look at, I guess, I wanted to start with District 1. I mean, District 1 is such a, a pivotal district. It includes downtown. We've It has a history where we've we've, we've had people like Henry C. Cisneros, uh, Maria Berriazabal, Diego Bernal. It's, 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 it's a really critical uh, district. Um, obviously, we've got the, the Alamo Plaza redevelopment is, is, is based there. And you had Roberto Trevino, someone who's had made it through three terms. Uh, this was going to be his, uh, an attempt to make it to a, to a fourth and final term. And he was unseated by Mario Bravo. What do you think happened in that district? So what what I took away from it was that, you know, Trevino, like I've said on the podcast before, that, that Trevino in the past two years has really kind of remade himself to a certain degree as kind of this progressive insurgent on the council. Um, but, you know, he's he's really managed to sort of anger people. Uh, yeah, many of you know his constituents, uh, particularly in the Delview area, uh, which is near his field office, which he's turned into kind of a center where uh, the homeless can seek services and, to some degree, camp. Uh, you know, that's that's ma- that made a lot of people in Delview upset. It, uh, you know, they said that it was making the whole area less safe. Um, at the same time, you know, you had sort of neighborhood issues popping up in Lavaca. Uh, King William was was coming out against him. Uh, but, you know, broadly speaking, you know, he 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 often sort of found himself sort of out of step with, uh, you know, voters and, you know, Mayor Ron Nirenberg. Um, yeah, I I couldn't help but think, you know, District one went heavily uh, for Mayor Nirenberg's ready to work plan back in November. Uh, and, you know, he was against it. Uh, he, I think, he was also hurt by the fact that he was kicked off of the uh, the two pair, the pair of Alamo committee, uh, you know, leadership posts that he had held for the past couple of years. Um, you know, since sort of the the whole uh, beginning of the the uh, the Alamo Plaza restoration project took hold. Um, you know, he had said that that was that was dead after. Uh, you know, state panel uh, wouldn't allow them to move the cenotaph, and obviously the mayor disagreed. Yeah, uh, I think that was sort of a, a key part of his victory, or not his victory, his his loss here. Yeah, um, and I think Mario Bravo was able to sort of capitalize on all of this discontent. Um, you know, you know, you, I I heard from people here and there that you know Bravo was was 
really going after uh, you know the Delview folks, obviously, but also you know conservatives in the district, uh, folks who had who had voted for Trump in the general election, yeah. um, and. You know, I, I think that there were that there were a couple things. You know, he was able to just consolidate uh, the support from you know the other candidates that were running in the race um, right. in May. I wanted to mention that you you talked about the, the seeking out the Trump supporters, and that 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 was really interesting. Because you know, we've all known Mario Bravo uh, as someone who's been very involved in vi- environmental uh, issues. He would certainly define himself as as a, a strong progressive, and uh, but you know the. Local politics can take some weird twists. And uh, I mean, I, I heard about somebody who from somebody who lived in District one, uh, they they had a neighbor who had a Trump sign uh, in front of their house a few months ago. And in, in recent weeks, they had a Mario Bravo sign. And it was, as you said, um, this sense that some people had that that Trevino in uh, allowing you know homeless individuals to stay near his field office, that this was this was something that was angering some people in the neighborhood and, and they might have not even defined it as a progressive or conservative issue, but this was just, um, he, he basically found himself at odds with his neighborhood association. Yeah. And, you know, as, as John Courage's victory in district nine proves like it's really, and, and I believe also, you know, Clayton Perry's win in, in D10, uh, back in May proved you, you really can't, anger the neighborhood groups uh you have to have them on your side um and and to solidify support among them uh you know and and people just thought trevino was arrogant um particularly ernest salinas who's the head of the delview uh, neighborhood association and and even people that i spoke to who were trevino supporters admitted that that perhaps he was not uh he he didn't take criticism well that yeah. he wasn't uh really listening to uh, the feedback that he was getting from folks, yeah. um, and, and Delview is kind of the 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 most prominent example of that. I wanted to talk about uh, the other uh, council incumbent who was unseated, uh, Jade Andrew Sullivan. After only one term, um, she had a pretty uh, uh, non-eventful term in office, but didn't have much to run on. She was running against a former uh, council aide in her office, uh, Jalen McHugh Rodriguez, who. Um, was very critical of what he observed when he was in her office and said that he had also been subjected to uh, homophobic treatment from her chief of staff, Lou Miller. Um, he won by a wide margin. He is, uh, he will now be the first gay man, uh, ever to serve on the San Antonio city council. He, uh, is apparently the first openly gay black man to be elected to office in Texas from what I understand. And on Saturday night, uh, he talked a little bit about, uh, you know, what his victory meant. Let's listen to that. A lot of people said that District 2 wouldn't be ready for a candidate like me. Would District 2 be ready for a young gay candidate? Is Texas ready for a young gay black man 
to Josh, be what do you think the, the, the keys were in his victory, so and, what, and, what, uh, and what, what do you expect to see him, uh, you know, advocate for? Everyone in city deserves representation. And if you have the right motive, so I mean, the like right, the first lesson uh, I, I see here listener, is uh, don't, and I you hope know, this opens doors I for guess a lot mistreat your employees uh, because if you're a council member, because they might oust you in the next election. Uh, you know, two years ago, he was working as a communications advisor uh, for for Jada Andrew Sullivan, and you know, in that time, as you mentioned, you know, he. Uh, he alleged that he was treated, uh, you know, subjected to homophobic treatment from Chief of Staff Lou Miller, and now, now he has her job. Uh, and you know what? What I witnessed in 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 that race, which you know was covered, you know, splendidly by uh, staff writer Liz Hardaway, was that you know a lot of you know a lot of sort of neighborhood groups were kind of upset with Jada Andrew Sullivan's sort of absence. Uh, they they found it difficult to get a hold of her. Um, and, you know, just to get sort of on the same page with her about stuff that's going on in the district. And, you know, Jalen managed to just outspend her uh, for most of the campaign. She, she, her fundraising and her spending didn't really kick up until the last week's of the campaign. I'm not sure that she understood that, that she was in serious trouble until it was too late. Um, and you know, he, he managed to sort of get sort of this groundswell of sort of younger voters in the district, uh, mm -hmm. folks who, you know, were sort of, were also aligned with sort of the Texas organizing project. He snagged endorsements from, you know, the democratic socialists of America, um, you know, and I would, I would expect him to basically enact or try to enact something that's kind of a, uh, um, you know, sort of a bolder, sort of more progressive and frankly, socialist kind of, uh, agenda here. You know, I, I spoke with him yesterday and, you know, he, 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 and, you know, Terry Castillo, who is the other sort of, uh, progressive young progressive who won in, in Saturday's runoffs, uh, you know, they, they, they understand that like a lot of city council work is sort of blocking and tackling on things like streets and sidewalks, drainage. Um, but you know, they're also coming in here with the intent of, you know, boost, boosting more money for affordable housing, say, right. um, you know, they're, they're going to be fairly strident on police reform and they're going to, and they will likely, uh, be taking a huge magnifying glass to, uh, the city's police budget. Yeah, um, yeah they're going to face some obstacles on that front. Um, but, you know, they're finding ways already. They're trying to find ways around it. Uh, Jalen mentioned to me yesterday that, you know, in the city's upcoming budget talks, he's going to try to, uh, you know, get money to basically establish a an agency within city government that would basically study crime prevention mm -hmm. and would employ criminologists so they're kind of working within sort of the, the confines and the limits that sort of um, you know political and legal uh, that exist uh, to right. uh, to prevent people from cutting police spending Josh I'm I'm curious about what you think about Mayor Nuremberg's reaction to this. So he's got kind of a, you know, what looks to be a little more lefty uh, city council than he had before with, you know, the election of a couple of 
you know, pretty, pretty strident progressives. How do you think he's going to react to that? I think he's going to try to work hard to sort of get them in his corner on a lot of this stuff. Um, he, he, and, and part of the other thing I should mention here is that like, even though like this, this council is going to tilt a little bit further left, um, you know, Terry and Jalen are not sort of treating themselves as sort of insurgents here. They're, they both appear to be sort of wanting to take sort of a very collaborative uh, sort of approach. Uh, but you know, I, I spoke to people yesterday who were who are saying, you know, if 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 I'm Mayor Nuremberg, I am trying to get them in my corner and try to sort of like take them under my wing, and you know, get them on board with my agenda. Um, but you know, he's he's often been criticized by you know sort of progressive groups for for taking kind of this middle of the road uh, path. Um, you know, he's he's you know in some of these progressive circles. Uh, He's he's kind of been he's uh, been sort of labeled as as a moderate um, and perhaps a little bit tepid on on some of the issues of the day. Um, And, you know, if I'm you know, I I wonder whether he is is taking this as a sign that he can go a little bit bolder Hmm. um, if and and want to actually take more steps to court these. Uh, progressives, or if he's going to look to sort of temper that in favor of sort of pa- of getting you know sort of this middle of the road agenda, because again, like something that that was that was brought up to me yesterday is like you don't if you're San Antonio, you don't want attention from the legislature that say Austin has gotten. You don't want sort of the punitive yeah. measures yeah. Um, that that the state's Republicans have placed on cities well, as a result of what, you know things you pass at city council. Yeah, I, I was just going to say I, I remember when. Ron was considered an environmental activist by the business community, right? And now you have uh, Ana Sandoval uh, and now Mario Bravo, who literally is an environmental activist. And I I wonder if, uh, like you said, Josh, if this is going to offer Ron an opportunity to move more boldly in that direction, uh, perhaps with CPS energy, right? Yeah. And and what, what was interesting... I was I was speaking to Richard Bettas, uh, the head of the San Antonio Chamber, yesterday, and you know he has been and the chamber has been a pretty stalwart ally of CPS and SAWS, and now he's you know you see Mario Bravo, who's kind of this insurgent sort of CPS critic, uh, taking you know this this you know you know, now has a seat on the dais. And, you know, I was talking to him about it and he, he was like, look, like, I think we can all, uh, I think we can all work together. I don't know if how much of this is, uh, just everybody's playing wait and see. Um, it's typically a, a council with a lot, with not a lot of interpersonal conflict and not like a lot of ideological conflict. Um, but, but I'm anxious to see whether, you start to see things flare up, particularly on the utilities with uh, mm-hmm. with Mario on the council. Yeah. Wanted to mention that in, in District 3, we had uh, that was probably the least dramatic uh, race there. You had uh, two familiar Southside families. You had Phyllis Villagran, who was uh, trying to inherit the office that her sister Rebecca had held for the past eight years, running against uh, former state rep Tomas Uresti, who's uh, lost, he's been in kind of a losing streak the last few years. And, and of course, the, his, his family has uh, 
name has 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 been uh, uh, politically damaged since his 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 brother's um, conviction and and imprisonment a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, and and uh, Phyllis Figuron uh, won that race comfortably. But I, the the one that we haven't talked about it that was I think one that attracted a lot of attention was uh, over in the North Side in District Nine, where you had John Courage, um, who is uh, you know a a lifelong Democrat uh, who got elected four years ago in a conservative district and has managed managed to get reelected in 2019, but he was facing um, a, a, a challenge from Patrick Von Dolan, a, an absolute uh, culture warrior, someone whose group, the San Antonio Family Association, has advocated for gay conversion therapy, someone who uh, was uh, clearly opposed to the wearing of masks, even during the statewide mask mandate. Um, and uh, when you look at, the, I think that there was a lot of concern. I mean, I, that I heard even among some uh, Republicans, the Bear County Republican Party got behind Von Dolan in a big way. But privately, I was hearing from Republicans who have a lot of issues with Von Dolan. Um, what happened in that race, Josh? So you know, courage over you know his past two terms is you know he's. I should say prior to, you know, getting elected to council in, in 2017, he was really this perennial Democratic candidate. Like, I mean, in name a race and he's and he's kind of run for it. Uh, and, you know, he gets in on the north side uh, in 2017 and from there becomes like this really sort of neighborhoodsy, uh, you know, constituent services driven uh, a council member, um, which is how he's sort of managed to hold on in, you know, a part of town that's gotten increasingly conservative during the, the Trump era. Uh, it's the only city council district that voted for Trump in 2020. Um, but, you know, he's managed to sort of uh, make inroads with with neighborhood groups. Um, he's he's made sort of inroads with I, I guess you would call them disaffected Republicans, people who are more of of kind of the Romney stripe, uh, who don't like all of this sort of uh, uh, the, basically the Trumpian uh, takeover of of the Republican Party. And, you know, you also see him kind of aligned with uh, with District 10 Councilman Clayton Perry, basically the only conservative on on the council. He's shown that he can work uh with uh, conservatives and, you know, he's not really uh, there. Oftentimes he's not a rubber stamp uh, yeah. in terms of some of the more progressive uh, things that the council pushes. Um, but, you know, he, he had a little bit of trouble. Uh, you know, Patrick Von Dola kind of missed no opportunity to uh, point out that he raised his fist in solidarity with Black Lives Matter activists back in uh, back in the summer, uh, you know, he kept Von Dolan kept trying to t uh, to sort of label uh, courage as a socialist, which is isn't true. Um, and, you know, he was basically able to uh, to sort of stave off um, Von Dolan by, you know, double digit or was it a double digit margin? It was, it was, it was, I think it was close to 8%. One of the, the, just looking at the results, uh, I was kind of fascinated by the fact that you, you, uh, you had a margin of, I think it was like 1,419 votes in that district. And it's a really high turnout district. 
and the the difference in the ele- uh, uh, if you look at the uh, how things broke down, it was pretty much an even race except for the absentee vote, and John Courage won that by more than three to one by thirteen hundred and five votes. I mean, almost the the entirety of his margin over Patrick Von Dolan came uh, from that, and it was it was. Uh, such an outlier in this election that he uh, that he got you know more than seventy five percent of the vote in in uh, uh, in the absentee uh, balloting, which again is kind of interesting to me because we've had so much discussion nationally about mail voting and so much sort of Republican uh, uh, you know opposition to uh, to various parts of mail mail voting, and in this case, you had Patrick Von Dolan, a, a hardcore conservative Republican. Um, who basically lost the election because of mail voting uh, in the way that you you saw uh, Donald Trump losing Arizona and, and, and Georgia and so on um, in 2020 because of that, too. So um, I think that's yeah. yeah, it's it's proven to really been a sort of kneecap for conservative candidates in in San Antonio. Um you know, something that that I was thinking about um, and, you know, back in May, you know, Brockhouse had had, you know, less well-funded campaign at the time. And, you know, he he, to my knowledge, never engaged in sort of the the anti-mail-in voting rhetoric that that other conservatives had. But, you know, the mayor ran a fairly aggressive mail-in ballot campaign, both in, you know, his run in May and also in uh, November. And, you know, it's really proven in these past two races to be an essential component of a campaign. If you want to run and and actually win, you have to, you know, make inroads on mail-in voting. And if you sort of engage in this uh, in this, you know, unfounded rhetoric, you're depriving yourself of like a really key, uh, puzzle piece. Joining us now on the podcast is Kayla Harris from our Austin bureau who, uh, has, has covered, uh, the legislative session and particularly the, uh, recently the, the drama surrounding, um, SB seven election law, which was, uh, pushed by Republicans and, and, uh, strongly opposed by Democrats. Kayla, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I wanted to, I, I know a lot of people have heard about SB7 and and uh, have some idea of what the issues are, are uh, uh, in this debate. But before we talk about what happened with this Democratic walkout, if you could talk a little bit about the specific provisions in the bill that Democrats have uh, have been most strongly opposed to. Sure. Um, so Senate Bill 7 was an omnibus elections bill, so it included a bunch of different provisions related to elections, just kind of touched on every little area of election law, which makes it a really confusing bill to read because it touches on so many different subjects. So a lot of this bill was in response to some voting methods that were piloted last fall in the 2020 election in Harris County. And so that included uh, drive-through voting or mass mailing vote-by-mail applications. Republicans don't want um, anyone who hasn't asked for an absentee ballot uh, application to receive one. Mm-hmm. Um, the legislation also uh, kind of removed restrictions for partisan poll watchers, which Democrats feared would kind of give them license to intimidate voters, especially voters of color. 
Um, and the, this bill had kind of gone through a bunch of different, um, versions, phases. It was a lot of legislative drama that honestly isn't worth getting into. But at the end of it, uh, at the end of the whole thing, when the Senate and the House went to this conference committee to work out the differences in the bills that they passed, they also came out with some new provisions um, that had never been considered by either chamber before, including one that would make it easier to overturn elections. And then uh, another one that really, really riled up Democrats toward the end of this process, uh, which would have limited voting on Sundays, you couldn't vote uh, before 1 p.m. And that kind of targeted souls to the polls, which is a tradition of getting black voters out to the polls after Sunday services. Uh, Republicans later said that that was, you know, a typo and it should have said 11 a.m. instead of 1 p.m. But regardless, those were all provisions that were just really um, unsavory. As you reported last week, um, there was there was some disagreement. I mean, there was a, a, a Zoom meeting uh, among some of the Democrats uh, on on that Saturday, the day before uh, the walkout, and there was some disagreement um, within the caucus about whether this was the right thing to do, the right approach to take. Uh, what were some of the concerns that um, that some some uh, House members had about about walking out and breaking quorum? Yeah, you know, so this this decision to walk out kind of happened really rapidly over over 48 hours, but really started picking up steam um, over about 30 hours or so with that Zoom meeting that you mentioned. So this walkout happened uh, last Sunday, which was the 30th of May. Um, so that the Saturday before that, Saturday morning, Democrats had caucused. It was a really long um, caucus meeting. And some Democrats were saying, you know, SB7 is going to come up tomorrow there's a deadline. What should we do? Should we walk out? And House leadership really commissioned against it. They were like, you know, I don't know if this is the best idea. There are so many downsides. Um, walking out is not something that happens very often. I mean, this this SB7 walkout was the fourth time that this has happened um, in Texas history. Uh, I mean, Greg Abbott, the governor, could immediately call a special session and just force them to pass it anyways. Right. Um, Republicans could go back and come back with a worse bill. Uh, this could, you know, there were just so many things that could have gone wrong. There was also like <laughs> physical concerns because if uh, Speaker Dade Phelan really wanted to, he could have sent state troopers mm-hmm. after Democrats who'd left the chamber and literally had them, you know, drag legislators back to the Capitol and um, force there to be a quorum, you know? So <laughs> there were <laughs> lots of concerns about that. But as the, uh, as the day went on, uh, about a dozen Democrats, um, all Democrats of color, uh, they went on this Zoom. They were like, you know, I, I really think that this is the best idea at this point. They said it, it's the most certain to defeat the bill for now. Um, just all of these other procedural tactics that they could have employed, points of order, or, you know, just running out the clock on this. None of them were really certain. Mm-hmm. So they thought that this was a good idea. They talked about it a couple of times Saturday night. Sunday, uh, early in the day, about uh, 1230 or so before the House uh, gaveled in, they had uh, d- Democrats, the entire uh, caucus, they had another caucus meeting and they talked about it again. Same concerns came up. Fine. Later in the day, about 2.30 or so, uh, there was a black and brown summit. So black and brown Democrats met and they talked about how this bill would really specifically impact Texans of color and that they felt really strongly that walking out was the best option at this point, rallied a lot of support for it, kind of did an informal headcount. Um, and it looked like there was, this was gaining some momentum. 
Um, and it was. And so they sent some Democrats to go do an actual headcount afterwards. Um, by this point, it's like uh, mid-afternoon. It's mm-hmm. like 3, 4 p.m. They're doing a headcount and whatnot. They have another caucus meeting around 5.30 with all of the Democrats. And Speaker Dade Phelan comes. And he stops by. He's like, listen, I've heard that y'all are thinking of walking out. If you walk out, I'm not going to send troopers after you. I'm not going to lock the doors. You do what you got to do. But if you do walk out, the bill that is... We, we are going to consider an elections bill at some point. It's just going to happen. Republicans control every aspect of state government. So it's going to happen whether you like it or not. And the bill that comes back might be worse. So he walked away, whatever. Democrats said, all right, we're walking out. And the rest of it's history, you know? <laughs> <laughs> probably more information than you need. No, that's great. I, I was, you, as you pointed out, uh, Speaker Phelan, uh, you know, did not try to prevent them from leaving, did not try to bring them back. Um, I got the sense last week from uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick that he was uh, unhappy about that. Uh, were you, supp- <laughs> were you, <laughs> maybe that, I, that's probably the understatement of the, of the year, but uh, were you surprised that that the speaker uh, basically allowed them allowed them to do what they were going to do, and then thought, "I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to play hardball in in trying to to force you to 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 stay." I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, Dave Phelan, his game is really really interesting. He was elected as speaker earlier this year with bipartisan support. He, um, you know, he had the he had the backing of a lot of Democrats. Um, and so, uh, there is a little bit of politics behind that, but you know, I don't know. It it was late in the night. There were a lot of procedural tactics that led up to this, that Republicans had, had kind of delayed this bill on their own. So Democrats had the opportunity to use the, uh, the, the quorum breaking tactics that were available to them. It's in, you know, the rules of the, Mm -hmm. the chamber and whatnot. And I think that that, was something that uh, Dave Phelan was really emphasizing is that he's not going to be a, a speaker who's going to force um, representatives to uh, act on something that they feel is against the interests of their constituents. And uh, so I don't know if I was surprised by it. It, it was a very um, Switzerland move because Republicans are going to come back anyways. This was kind of a safe time to do it. We're coming back for a special session um, for redistricting anyways. So it's not like this bill is dead, dead. It, it, it seemed like a, um, uh, it was, it was a good move for him, I think. Yeah. Kind of a pragmatic move. Um, well, as yes. you pointed out, uh, th- there will be a, there will be a special session. This bill is, will come back. Um, and, uh, I know it's hard to, to prognosticate these things. So I apologize in advance for asking you to do this, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> what is, uh, do you, what impact do you think, if any, will this walkout have on the final form the bill will take? I mean, as you pointed out, there's already been some uh, discussion among Republicans that the one o'clock um, Sunday, the beginning of, of voting on Sunday um, at one o'clock was a clerical error or uh, some kind of mistake. And so I, I would think that that's probably going to get looked at. It'll be taken um, out, yeah. Do you think that 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 the that the form that the final form that the bill takes in a special session will be in any uh, it, it changed in any other ways um, because of what we've what we've recently seen? Yeah, uh, it's hard to say. It's um, kind of like you said. It's I, I can't really see into the future on this one. What I will say though is that this bill that we'll see 
come back later will definitely be a much cleaner version of the bill that we saw come out of the conference committee uh, last weekend. And that's because, you know, this, this bill that was considered, the Senate really took the lead on rewriting a lot of stuff. They had typos just throughout the bill. Um, mm-hmm. There was obviously that souls to the polls provision, which Republicans claim was a typo that'll be adjusted. And so a, a lot of this bill, I think you'll see just a much cleaner version of it. And and even the the bill author in the House, uh, Briscoe Kane, he he was like, yeah, this this bill was not the uh, the cleanest version that we could have put forward. And so I think Republicans are really Republicans are really going to take some time, look back on this, correct some things. Um, and bring back a, a version that uh, is much easier to, to pass through because it'll have the backing of a lot of, of most Republicans in, in just a really uh, defensible way. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to wrap things up there. Kayla Harris, thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Um, and for uh, everyone listening in, uh, hope everyone's doing well. We'll be back with you next week. Take care. Mm-hmm.